This is a podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. This University College Dublin Symposium examined the role of visual culture in constructing and critiquing the Irish Free State and national identity in the aftermath of political independence. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online. In this podcast, The Visual Culture of Partition in the North of Ireland, a paper by Stephen O'Neill. This emerges, as has sort of been said, from my current project, which is effectively a cultural history of partition in Ireland from 1920 to 1951. And this project is motivated, I suppose, primarily by a contention that culture broadly defined uh, has been used as a justification or explanation for partition, uh, an explanation which often actually fails to take into account the ways in which um, cultural representations were politicised in the process and aftermath of partition. Uh, for example, FSL Lyons' Culture and Anarchy in Ireland, in Ireland sorry, uh, 1890 to 1939, uh, constructed a sense of culture as a sort of cure for, or sorry, as a cause for partition, um, contending that the most important consequence of the 1921 settlement was that by concentrating attention on physical boundaries and questions of political sovereignty, it postponed almost till our own day any serious consideration of the cultural differences that underlay the partition of the country. This interpretation, of course, is a, a much longer tradition in Irish historiography, um, as sort of epitomised by the Queen's University Belfast uh, scholar J.C. Beckett, who sort of um, in 1952 claimed that the real partition is not in the map but in the minds of men. Um, and this kind of Lyons' analysis is actually redeployed or um, quoted quite often in uh, some of the revisionist um, sort of portrayals of Irish history in the 1980s by, say, uh, Roy Foster and Claro Halloran, particularly in reference to partition. Um, but this is obviously, and I, you know, context doesn't really need to be explained, but that it's sort of shadow- shadowed really by, by the troubles, um, which were then, I think, enveloping the island of Ireland and having um, a sort of serious effect on the interpretations of history and culture um, in that time. Uh, I just wanted to deconstruct this quote a little bit because 1921 actually serves as a pretty awkward um, location for the foundation of the northern state and also uh, as a location for partition. Um, in their history of the six-county government, Paul View, Peter Gibbon and Henry Patterson uh, actually locate the sort of Northern Ireland as being born between uh, sort of 1921 and 25. Um, and they say that sort of it, it occurs in 1921 or more precisely between that date and 1925 when the report of the Boundary Commission left the border as it was. Um, so even in seeking clarity, um, and this is quite obviously another very popular history, um, on the precise dates of partition, uh, Bew, Gibbons and Patterson's description muddies the waters even further in mentioning the Boundary Commission, a clause which had been included in the Anglo-Irish uh, Treaty and which was roundly actually um, considered by the Northern Government to be an act of betrayal. Um, so Lyon's description in 1921 as a settlement of the question or indeed sort of his description of any kind of settlement, um, is more than misleading or kind of contentious. Um, and if anything, in particularly in the years from 1921 to 25, as I hope to show, uh, the Boundary Commission was an unsettling and destabilising uh, influence uh, on the operation, particularly of the Northern Government, uh, and sort of state and semi-state cultural outputs. 
uh, from these years reflect a far-reaching anxiety about their future. Um, this anxiety is the defining feature, I think, of the cultural representations and the cultural outputs of Ulster Unionism uh, between 1921 and 1925, in which concepts of territory and identity were combined. Um, these years could then be loosely defined as a, as a cultural as much as a spatial interregnum, uh, that is a time when the boundaries of the state were being called into question by what was perceived as an arbitrary body. Um, and this meant that the kind of inherited literary and cultural traditions of uh, unionism uh, had to be redefined. Uh, as Peter Lurie's recent sort of fantastic book on a, a sociological book, I should say, on partition, on approved roots, histories of the Irish border uh, insists, if partition was based on the elevation of age-old religious distinctions, then the border which made it real exposed these identities to sudden questioning and disorientating change. It was, according to Leary, neither the most desired nor most readily envisioned uh, outcome to the conflicts that preceded its implementation. With the United Kingdom, Ireland and even Ulster all divided, no previously imagined community was left intact. So obviously evoking Benedict Anderson's uh, concept of an imagined community, Leary's study is concerned with the lived experience of those uh, on the border rather than sort of cultural representation, which is what we're concerned with, I suppose, today. Um, and this subject actually has found you know, very little sort of traction in studies of literature and arts from the period. So I suppose this refusal to examine the literature or cultural partition in any integrated or even uh, contrapuntal way uh, stems in part from a perception that the northern state was little concerned with any form of cultural representation in the aftermath of partition. Uh, for example, Joe Cleary's study, study of partition argues that Contrary to the South, there was no major literary or cultural revival designed to create a new Ulster or Northern Irish identity. Uh, yet this clearly goes on to say somewhat contradictorily, each, um, such representations actually constantly evoke the contrast between a vulgar but brashly energetic urban North and a more sleepy but easygoing rural South, as we sort of heard a bit from Billy, I suppose. Um, and this sort of contrast between the rural and urban was laminated onto the divided Irish landscape, whereas retained considerable power as a cultural ratification of partition ever since. So the, the description, I suppose, of an absent uh, northern cultural revival partly reflects a common den denigration of Ulster as a place without any writers or artists sort of worth talking about, um, something that found expression from those like Lemo Flaherty, who claimed in his 1926 biography of Tim Healy that the province had produced nothing in a cultural sense other than a barbarous rite, which consists of beating a drum savagely with bare fists until the blood spurts from the wrist. Things. So quite clearly there is um, a very um, sort of negative uh, depiction of Ulster in O'Flaherty's uh, biography of Tanahini, which is a strange location for that. Um, and hand in hand, I think, with the supposed cultural inferiority uh, was an absence of a coherent political message. As, as Sean McDougall writes, partition symbolically presented as the cutting of Ireland's throat seems to have cut unionist focal cords. Yet as McDougall has examined, the northern state was claiming a particular cultural heritage not always defined on sort of uh, sectarian or confessional lines uh, and fostered a number of representations to fit the changing image of uh, Ulster in the 1920s. So the interchangeable anxieties about territory and identity were a defining feature of um, the, these cultural outputs, uh, finding expression in what I would term a cartographic vernacular uh, that recalled uh, what the post-colonial theorist Edward Said um, termed in culture and imperialism the way in which structures of location and geographical reference appear in the cultural languages of literature, history, or ethnography, sorry. Um, and I think we can uh, also obviously add art to this. So I want to less ambitious, ambitiously sorry, suggest that 
Saeed's description of the consistent concern that empire found in English culture, he obviously takes a much longer view than I'm taking today, uh, which manifests itself in an astonishing frequency of geographical articulations, can be redeployed to describe uh, unionist representations of the north of Ireland in the years between 1921 and 1925. In these years, culture was evaluated primarily, I think, in terms of how it adhered to the contours of the northern state, frequently drawing upon binary concepts of identity that could be mapped on to what was then a temporary or considered as a temporary border on the island. Um, so as Gillian McIntosh uh, claims, a campaign of deeply politicised historiography in the 1920s attempted to generate an organic flowering of Austrian unionism, and therefore the northern state in a context of social, religious and economic clashes um, with the rest of the island. One example which anticipated the foundation of the state was the writer Herbert Murr Pym, whose 1919 work on Conquerable Ulster claimed that the fact that Ireland never was a na- the fact is that Ireland never was a nation, but that Ulster very distinctly, distinctly was a nation. And his prolonged description of geographical difference sort of across the globe, uh, comparing Ireland's cultural differences to those of America and France, Pym's analysis plainly relied upon acts of geographical fabrication, as this quote I think exemplifies. So I have before me a map of Ireland as it existed in the 12th century, and what does this map reveal? It reveals the interesting fact that the King, Kingdom of Ulster consisted of the famous six counties which Sir Edward Carson declared the provisional government would exclude from any Home Rule Act if we accept Donegal and the County Live. Just take an atlas and follow the line which I shall describe. Begin at the Boyne Mouth and follow the boundary of the County Live, now geographically included in Leinster, the division between Cavan and Monaghan and pass right through the centre of Fermanagh along the lakes. All north of that line was the Kingdom of Ulster. Even to this day, the spirit of Ulster lingers in the County Live. So much for geographical continuity. And the six counties of today are as solid for the rights of Ulster as they were 700 years ago, nay, as they were 2,000 years ago. This kind of you know, pre-Christ Ulster um, could certainly, I think, be called into question, as would you know, the fact that he doesn't actually you know, source the map itself uh, that he's referring to. But Pym's 1919 history prefigures the geographical register that had furnished representations of Ulster in these years, I think, of ontological instability. Um, the similar sort of arguments find more subtle expression in the histories of David Alfred Short and Ernest Hamilton, who both uh, find a common point of origin for partition in the Ulster plantation. Uh, Hamilton's Elizabethan Ulster, uh, published in the same year as Pym's history, was prefaced with a map of the northern part of Ireland as part of its front matter, framing a narrative that argued for the exceptionalism of Ulster identity in Ireland. Um, and as Pym and Hamilton's text demonstrate, the map became its sort of dominant feature of um, an emerging identity in Ulster, functioning almost as a birth certificate or a document of, ident- of authenticity Sorry for the new state. So it also appears, for example, in a number of novels which have like quite sort of patent geographical set pieces in which someone crosses the border and it starts reading. Um, or, <laughs> uh, or, for example, uh, in sort of tour guides which very clearly ask the sort of reader to you know, take up the map. So a strikingly similar mapping of identity in Ireland was undertaken by the semi-state body, the Ulster Association for Peace with Honour, in 1921, uh, shortened to the Ulster Association which generally functioned as a propaganda machine. Uh, the Ulster Association printed various pamphlets uh, stressing what James Laughlin terms the ongoing historico-geographical dimension of unionist propaganda. As Laughlin notes, the Ulster Association, as the main platform for government propaganda, was well-financed, effectively organised, <coughs> sorry, and operated across a number of fronts at home and abroad. The president of the association was the Northern Prime Minister, James Craig, and its chief financiers were the three editors of the main unionist newspapers in Belfast, which are the, sorry, the Belfast uh, Telegraph, 
the newsletter and the Northern Week. Uh, but its primary publication was the Bulletin or the Ulster Bulletin, a periodical which was aimed at an Anglo-American audience uh, and published occasionally uh, between September 1922 and September 1925. So the journal roughly coincided uh, with the threat posed by the Boundary Commission, uh, which loomed large as a challenge to the new state and was boycotted almost entirely by the Unionist government. The initial cover design of the Bulletin imaged an industrial identity onto what the journal considered as Ulster, with the ropes, shipyards, mills and a weaver, uh, mostly derived from the economy of Belfast, as you can see in the left image here, uh, forming a lasting kind of iconography. So the first issue of this journal carried on its title page a message from Craig, claiming that there was a dangerous campaign of misrepresentation uh, of the recent Belfast pogroms, uh, and that there was also no evidence of any general policy by the government of anti-Catholicism. Obviously quite contentious um, uh, things to say. Uh, other articles in the first issue of the periodical reinforced both the supposedly peaceful nature of the new state, as well as corroborating the identity which the cover clearly sponsored. As one anonymous article entitled uh, Can Ireland Unite put it, Ulster is distinctly a commercial and industrial province, and as such is in marked distinction to the south, and it must be obvious that with Many, but sorry, with unity, sorry, with the rest of Ireland is impracticable in the present generation. So, the little imagery um, is found in the first uh, couple of issues. Uh, in later issues, the journal made increasing reference to the Boundary Commission, and this manifested itself in a range of features that reasserted uh, the right of the state to exist, such as the maxims and bold type capitals um, that were occasionally placed at the bottom of the journal's pages. And this one in particular urged readers that, you know, Letters for Northern Ireland should be addressed Ulster. So this didn't just amount to a territorial claim over the area of the province that remained in the free state, or you know, for the time being, but also a general discomfort with the term Northern Ireland as a sort of you know a new term, uh, which unlike Ulster lacked any historical reference. So when the first issues made little reference to the threat of the Commission in direct terms, the third issue of the journal's uh, first volume, published in July 1923, uh, featured a spread entitled "The Boundary Question." Uh, the text of this article on the left-hand side, which again carried no author name, insisted that a permanent settlement is far more likely to be reached along the lines suggested by Sir James Craig than by persisting in the setting up of a commission. It should be noted again in reference to Lyons' use of the word settlement that I had mentioned earlier this, you know, at the start of my uh, talk that it was clearly not a settlement uh, for the Unionists at the time and they were obviously very anxious about their position uh, as, as this sort of shows. Uh, but the contention that partition was in the best interest of both states was also reinforced, obviously, by the visual aid of a crop map of the island of Ireland, uh, which argued that Donegal, Monaghan and Cavan were disputed territories that the North <coughs> was gracious to give up in 1921. And then by September of that year, the Bolton's cover abandoned the industrial iconography, uh, which adorned the first volume in favour of a map that supposedly outlined the shipping routes from Ulster, uh, but also quite noticeably left out the disputed counties along with the rest of the island. Um, so this sort of puts this in mind of Benedict Anderson's uh, description of a logo map in which all explanatory gosses could be summarily removed, pure sign no longer compassed to the world. And this is epitomised by the fact that the map even suggests that a boat could be sailed directly through the uh, Inishwan Peninsula, if you look up <laughs> into the right. So, so the image of the map made one final appearance in the short-lived bulletin in October 1924, in a segment which was simply entitled, Is This Fair? Um, here are the more sort of detailed and scaled images gloss, perhaps with familiar language to our sort of present predicaments, in its claim that Ulster was an integral part of the United Kingdom. 
So the territorial anxieties uh, represented by these maps were also manifest in the bulletin's descriptions of visual culture, which were occasional but sort of quite significant. As Kieran Swan writes in his analysis of representations of partition in the Free State, the Northern Government regarded the border as a positive element of its self-perception, uh, one that provided tangible proof of its distinctiveness from the rest of the island. So a few contributors to the bulletin attempted to correct what they interpreted as the negative image of the North in cultural and political circles in Britain and Ireland. Um, these articles read the border as a defining feature of art in the six counties, um, the visual aids of the maps proving just as useful for interpreting works of art. Of art sorry. So one review of William Connor's 1923 exhibition uh, at the Goupil Gallery in London exemplifies this recalibration of culture according to its political value and very much in the context of partition. So this incredulity that they sort of are describing about um, the northern capital and its ability to produce an artist or two is, of course, easily accounted for. And one recollects that until a few months ago, the whole attitude in most political and cultural quarters was to belittle Belfast and all to that it pertained. As is shown by the press comments in Connor's art and in reviews of the poems of Richard Rowley, the laureate of modern workaday Belfast, the new orientation of English sympathy does not yet include a realisation that the North can be introspective, full of deep feeling and just as devotedly spiritual in its own way as the more romanticised and sentimentalised South and West. And again, we have um, the launch, which Billy obviously talked about in terms of the uh, Chicago Warfare in 1933, um, which was incidentally the only painting mentioned in this, um, in this review of the exhibition. Um, and the piece sort of neatly com complements the, the Bolton's iconography industrialism um, at the start. So what I mentioned there, you know, it clearly has a sort of ship in the background as well to, to the right of the, of the cover um, in previous issues. And it was actually described, so this painting is effectively described in the building as Belfast, Belfast pure and simple. Uh, but there was also an inconsistency involved here since in the next issue's discussion of Ulster poetry, another contributor, quite, sort of, contributor sorry, uh, quite plainly states that the Northerners are not so introspective as their southern fellow countrymen, a trait which makes them closer to the South. So they could adjust the particular um, qualities of, of culture according to you know, the, the moment quite, quite clearly. These articulations of a cultural tradition in the Ulster Bulletin were far more concerned, I think, with latent territorial anxieties than they were with any exposition of contemporary literature or art. Um, the frequent appearances of the map in the Bulletin then were complemented by a cartographic vernacular that stressed the distinctiveness of social and cultural life in Ulster. And this distinctiveness actually found form to an audience of millions in the British Empire exhibition held at Wembley from 1924 to 25. Uh, this was at the time the largest exhibition staged anywhere in the world, uh, with around 25 million visitors across the two seasons that it ran from, and cost the British government initially about £12 million, which was quite, quite a fee at the time. Opening on St George's Day on the 23rd of April 1924, in what would become the home of the English national football team, Wembley, the exhibition housed 56 of the 58 territories um, within the empire. Um, however, while the dominions such as Canada and New Zealand uh, were mostly divided into separate uh, pavilions from the main exhibitions, Ulster had a quite a different location. So this is a map of the exhibition, and you can, well, it might be quite difficult to see some of it, but you might just uh, make out South Africa, which is at the bottom of the screen, uh, maybe Australia as well, and Canada, which are the two kind of big ones just above what is clearly sort of the empire stadium. Um, so other dominions or other kind of territories within uh, the Commonwealth of the Empire, which has actually been uh, sort of going through a rebranding as the Commonwealth, sorry, at this stage, um, were actually housed outside the main. So you can sort of see the two main buildings are the 
Palace of Industry uh, in the top left of the of the um, thoroughfare or whatever, and the Palace of Engineering. Um, with the official guide sort of uh, framing the exhibition as an opportunity to express loyalty to the ideas of justice, progress, and liberty um, that the sort of British Empire punitively represented. It was perhaps unsurprising that the Northern Government were keen to participate in the exhibition. Um, in minutes which discussed their invitation from the organisers, the chair of the organising committee for the Northern Government, uh, Cecil Litchfield, outlined the reasons as follows. So to establish firmly throughout the Empire the fact that notwithstanding all the political upheavals in Ireland, Ulster is still an integral part of the United Kingdom, a phrase that we again heard again, that her industries, her institutions and her social life are based on British principles and to couple with that impression, the further impression uh, that's subject always to our unquestioned loyalty to the Crown and devotion to the Empire, we have in Ulster certain inherent characteristics among all classes, both in industry and otherwise, that make deviation from this policy an impossibility. So these sentiments roughly accorded with the personal message uh, delivered by Craig uh, to the opening of the Empire, which was actually printed alongside W.T. Cosgrave's uh, apology for the absence of the Irish Free State, which I suppose I have time to explain, which is that basically uh, Cosgrave said that the costs of the civil war, he didn't quite say civil war, but what he said the costs incurred with the setting up of a new state or a new government, um, which is, I think, euphemism for the you know, quite you know, considerable cost of the civil war. Yeats was quite annoyed, actually, that there was no opportunity for it, mostly because um, he felt the empire represented a pretty good opportunity for Irish art. Um, so although sort of other countries wish to exploit opportunities for trade and some of the sort of apology, I think, by Cosgrave is couched in kind of disappointment that he couldn't you know, do that, the Ulster Bulletin, again, publicly heralded the real purpose of Ulster's involvement in the exhibition. And this is a, a kind of scale model of the... <coughs> of the exhibit. So the sole object in G was not to display Ulster and Ulster products. The spirit which permeated those responsible was a deeper one of again showing Ulster's loyalty, reminding Wembley visitors, both home and colonial, that Ulster is still part of Great Britain. So despite the absence of any free state government pavilion, the threat that the existence of the South posed was clearly a motivating factor in the construction of the Ulster Pavilion, which was deliberately actually located in or integrated into uh, the British Palace of Industry rather than occupying land outside of the main uh, sort of British of palace, palaces. Um, and with the gov Northern Government spending around £12,000 on the structure, uh, both the Cabinet discussions and the Parliament debates around the pavilion reflected a general eagerness on the part of Unionists to participate in the exhibition, whatever the cost. The fact that it roughly coincided with the meetings of the Boundary Commission rendered the pavilion an obvious piece of propaganda in the midst of the negotiations around the border. Um, and some of these negotiations actually occurred uh, on the day after the exhibition, the exhibition sorry, launched. A sort of serendipity which was noted by the London correspondent, sorry for the Freeman's Journal. So it is impossible to think even today, of, even of today's Boundary Conference, apart from the Wembley exhibition. Sir James Craig, Mr Pollock and Mr Archdale were present at the opening ceremony yesterday morning, as well as the High Commissioner of the Free State in London, Mr James McNeill. And it is impossible not to feel that the position of the Irish government in relation to the Boundary Conference today would have gained much in popular support if Ireland, as well as the northeastern corner, had been represented in the exhibition. The opportunity is now irrevocably lost. So many aspects of the pavilion itself, um, which was described as a small-scale Ulster, confirmed the link between the exhibition and the ongoing territorial dispute. Designed by the architect Chloe Williams Ellis and built by the northern engineers McLaughlin and Harvey, 
The exterior of the pavilion was adorned with the names of each of the six counties under dispute. Even the title Ulster Pavilion reflected again uh, the state of discomfort with the sort of new term Northern Ireland, which had no historical precedent and therefore made little headway in terms of the territorial claims. More state iconography was also on show, with the heraldic arms of Belfast and Derry cities featuring at one entrance and the red hand of Ulster at another. And indeed, the occasion of the exhibition and the building of the pavilion even led to the, for the Cabinet to discuss on a number of occasions between 1923 and 24 uh, the possibility of a new flag and arms for the new state, which was at the time using the Union flag, um, as it is now, I suppose. Um, so the Ulster King of Arms was contacted for this purpose, and uh, one of the first flags of six counties was thus created, which you can see up there. Uh, this is actually an artist's impression of it, so I don't have a picture of it such. Um, and there's also a debate in Parliament over whether the red hand was actually green, which was obviously a no-no in the context. But So apparently the, one of the iterations of this flag had a green hand, which was um, obviously sort of not in sort of um, sympathy with the myth, but also offensive on a, on a colour level. So the cartographic vernacular that was dominant in virtually all forms of sort of the representation that I've talked about in these years um, was the rationale behind one of the most prominent features of the exhibit as well. As Lesby wrote to the private secretary of James Craig as early as September 1923, we've arranged to have a diagrammatic map of the whole of Ulster in the pavilion, and this will give us an opportunity of stressing interests other than those of Belfast. So this purpose again suggests the anxieties around the Boundary Commission, uh, for which Belfast was sort of not really going to be up for debate, um, but actually needed um, sort of more representation of the rest of Ulster and to stress the kind of economic purposes uh, of the rest of Ulster and the importance of that as well. Um, as the official guide of the exhibition stated, a prominent feature which will catch the eye of the visitor is a huge diagrammatic map of Northern Ireland upon which the distribution of industries, the locality of pleasure resorts, uh, railway and steamer routes are lit electrically in turn. Um, so again, when you think about the sort of stated intentions of the uh, Ulster participation at the exhibition. It wasn't to do with trade whatsoever, but actually to do with their position in the sort of United Kingdom. And you can very clearly see that this might have had more of a, well, actually not very clearly see, but might have had more of a, um, an impact in terms of the political disputes at the time, uh, rather than in terms of any, any trade. You can just about, I think, make out Loch Ness there. Um, so the feature was eventually moved to the outside of the pavilion, serving once more as a reinforcement of the position the six counties within the British Empire and United Kingdom. Uh, and after a disastrous 1924, the wider exhibition uh, was renewed for another year. They expected to have 17 million, oh, sorry, 30 million uh, visitors in the first year, but then had to uh, sort of uh, continue for another year to kind of make back some of the costs. So uh, 17 million people visited in 1924, uh, and that figure improved to sort of 25 for the two years in 1925. Um, and the Ulster government were literally doubled down on their commitment to it. They were one of the only uh, governments uh, which uh, continued to uh, exhibit at the, at the British Empire exhibition, basically increased their exhibit by twice the size. So just finally, uh, and very shortly taken together, the Ulster Bulletin and Ulster Pavilion were some of the sort of simpler articulations of um, the kind of cultural partition in the north of Ireland, um, which formed sort of part of a wider structure of location with what I would term an anxious unionist imaginary. But they encapsulated how culture was territorially inflected in these years. How much geographical images, to borrow the phrase of Oliver McDonough, held um, sort of a distinct power over men's minds. And just finally, the clear political intentions of these images offer visual culture as a point of, point of entry sorry, into what has since been called you know, northern culture, 
um, a culture which I think in itself has been dislocated from these anxious origins. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was organised by Roisin Kennedy and funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online.